2: Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from Football 365, and Adrian Clark, the Tactical Analyst. If you listen closely, you can hear the squawking of turkeys refusing to vote for Christmas. It's entirely predictable, and, let's be honest, entirely understandable, that the bottom ten clubs will oppose relegation if the Premier League season isn't finished. That's unthinkable, surely, because relegation is essential to retaining the integrity of the competition. Now, it might be hard in these artificial circumstances, but it's
1: got to happen, hasn't it, Seb? Absolutely, Mike. It's the dynamic upon which our our football system depends. It's really also what separates the Premier League from being kind of an NFL-style franchise league. I don't really understand this argument anymore. But I mean, in the beginning, I, I sort of appreciated the neutral venue aspect and the effect on the competitive balance that that may or may not have had. I, I understood that, even if I thought that the, sort of the argument itself was quite gratuitous and opportunistic. But no, I, I've got no, no time for that argument now, because if there's no relegation, why are we playing at all? Then it just becomes a money collecting exercise. If you take the competition, I, I know it already is. Let's not play play dumb. You know, the Premier League clubs are scared of rebates to television companies, quite rightly. Those those figures are pretty intimidating. But if you take relegation away from this, then I, I obviously can't calculate it in percentage terms, but how many of those fixtures become entirely redundant? Yeah.
0: But what though, Seb, if for some reason, let's hope there is no second spike, etc. But yeah. if for some reason the, the season's curtailed and they have to effectively do what the EFL are considering doing by, by doing points per game. I don't know, how does it sit with you? Teams being relegated on points per game, especially when it's when it's so close. Would would you view change?
2: But, but isn't there, you know, in, in any insurance policy, there's a sort of force majeure clause, isn't there? And I, th- I suppose we're getting to that in football, aren't we? Because, and and, you know, my suspicion is that there will be some form of, well, there has to be a contingency plan, but also a compromise. And usually in football, in modern football at least, a compromise involves money. Now, I can see some sort of arrangement that if there is a perceived unfairness in any
0: relegation this season, you know, maybe there'll be a few extra quid on the parachute payments. That's uh, what football is doing. I, I think so. I, th- I think that's what will happen if if teams are relegated on on a points per game basis. I mean, Mark Palios and Nicola Palios, they come up with the idea of well, they don't want relegation, do they? they? They want each league to be bigger for one season, and then for us to to, to sort it out over the next over the next two. And I, and I understand that personally. I think I think I think we've got an opportunity to try something a bit different. Let's let's say the championship continues Let, let's say that football has to stop we, we, we get started and it has to stop what do we do well how about we could we, we could in potential have the bottom two go down and the top two go up because on a points per game basis but then we could have a relegation playoff or a relegation slash promotion playoff with a third bottom the one that's the closest to to avoid in the drop facing off against the third in so the So like a Bundesliga system you mean a, like where, where yeah. they? yeah I, I think i think that might be a, a, an exciting way to to decide it but of course then if you've got to stop you've got to stop haven't you so i'm, I'm kind of defeating defeating my argument before it's even started it's, it's a difficult one it really is.
1: you're not you're not worried sort of say we accommodate relegated teams in some way Say we make a provision which means that you know to sort of synthetically protect them from relegation that's all well and good in in these current times because you know it, it's an extraordinary period in the world's history but in the future, this creates a weird precedent. So, it, I mean, I, I know I'm being a little bit tenuous and um, you know a bit abstract here, but you're creating a situation where relegation becomes theoretical. It becomes like the first thing that happens before you mount your legal challenge against it, because once you've acknowledged that there is a a disruption to the competitive balance, once you acknowledge someone's been disadvantaged by like you know for argument's sake points per game, then you open the door for other things. And you open the door for someone saying, "Right, well, between February and March, I had nine first team players injured, and it, they were injured all on international duty, and that's just not fair because that's not that's not our responsibility." And I, I know that's fanciful, and I know it's a little bit absurd, but that is probably what would happen because football is a little bit absurd sometimes.
0: It, it is if we have to stop stopping our tracks, and that is it. There is no other way. I don't I think other than points per game, you know, unweighted points per game, and and yeah, I think Mike's. Mike's notion is the one that will come into play. Those that suffer the relegations on the back of it will will be given some extra money.
2: Yeah. I, I think it. that's probably what will happen. I suppose let's get down to brass tax on it though. Assuming the season does conclude, and we're talking, you know, even before it's restarted, but who do you think is in the most trouble here? Because, you know, if you look at it, we're we're dealing with a very small sample of fixtures. And, you know, logically enough. Momentum will be decisive in that matter. You know, it's probably going to be the worst possible time to to suffer a slow start or a or a poor run of form, isn't it? Do we feel that realistically it's down to the bottom six? Because if you think about it, five points between Brighton in fifteenth and Southampton, who look pretty much safe on thirty four points.
0: I do. Yeah, I, th- I think it is down to to the bottom six, and it's very very hard to split them, to be honest, because you you look at the fix fixture list, and you can see reasons or you can see games where where teams will really struggle but but then in this new environment with with no crowds and home advantage potentially nullified it, it is very hard to make make predictions i if you're asking me for a team that i think are in in trouble that not in a surprising way but on the basis as they're running it, it's villa it's a horrendous running they're at home to five clubs chasing Champions League football. Five clubs with a massive incentive. And and that, I think, is going to be really difficult for them. And that doesn't leave many games for them to pick up the points they need. I, th- I think they probably need at least nine or ten more points, Aston Villa. So, so I fear for them. But you can make a case for all of them going down. You really can.
1: I think there's a really interesting case for West Ham. So the, the, when you look at their fixtures, it's quite interesting because... The road away from relegation seems to go through West Ham. They've got Burnley at home, which is um, Burnley are going to survive? You know, they've got to go to Norwich. They've got Watford at home. They've got Villa at home. They themselves have got to go to Man United and St James's Park. Like, you could make an argument that on a cost per player, you know, cost per wage basis, West Ham are one of the worst Premier League teams ever put together. <laughs> um, now, I wonder. Um, I wonder (laughs) whether but I I think it's fair if you look at at what's been spent not just this season over the last couple of years and you look at the calibre of player there like how is that team only out of the relegation zone on goal difference now and I wonder—it's a, it's
2: a dislocated club, though, isn't yes, it? You know, it is, not yes. just not just physically in terms of obviously. You know, we, we're not going to go through the the stadium debate, which we've had <laughs> ad nauseum over the last couple <laughs> of years. Mm. But it's it's almost you know, clubs have a certain feel and a certain just atmosphere around them, and that you know, whatever happens, whichever manager goes in. There is a toxicity to, to certain aspects of West Ham. Now, that can only come down to a consistent factor, which is the ownership.
1: Mm. I, I think that's very mm. fair, Mike. I mean, I, I, I think sort of, I think one of the dislocation is a really interesting word because when you think of West Ham, you think of transfer direction and ambition, which doesn't necessarily tally with where the club is and what would be in the club's best interest. And so I, I suppose. What I was going to say about their relegation is that, or potential relegation is that, in in a situation where you're playing a, for instance, a Norwich or a Villa, do you want that set of players under relegation conditions, where it's all about fight and energy and work rate and those kind of things, and the football's awful, but you know it's attritional and and, and desperate? Do you want that group of players t- fighting your corner? I'd say no. Like I I want I want I want I want, I want players that I know are committed to the club and I want players that I know want to be there for reasons other than their basic wage and as of a couple of months ago there were leaks coming out of the club about you know a big division between sort of the players who were there previously I'm sure we can all sort of we we will have a guess at who those players are and the players who have arrived and when you have that kind of thing that is a massive red flag ahead of a relegation fight
0: Mm. yeah I I don't disagree with any any of that I just I do think their talent might count for something because yeah, they maybe. do have more more talent. And actually, the the last game they played before the break was at was at Emirates, and I was there for it. And I also were really lucky, really fortunate to beat West Ham. Played excellently on the day. I mean, they didn't score, they didn't win. But there were signs of more positivity from Moyes, and I'm no fan of Moyes. I've, I've continually slated him really for the last <laughs> three years. I do, I, I do think he's he's somewhat of a busted flush as a, as a as a top class manager, and I just feel he he's too negative in the way he sets his teams up these days. They're not aggressive enough. But what I saw in that game against Arsenal w- was actually more of a an old Moyes team. They looked a bit like Everton under moy so 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 maybe that is a reason to feel optimistic but but it, they're in trouble with with villa going back to them you know they they do have if memory serves west ham on the final
2: day which could be potentially decisive if you look at villa are they you know, obviously they've got the opportunity to set a standard and set a tone right away because they're one of the by well, the, the on the first two catch up fixtures aren't they they're playing sheffield united so if they win that that would take them to 16th and there would there would be a different type of momentum involved looking at key players which we have done in the last couple of weeks Seb what do you think the impact of a remorseful Jack Grealish will be
1: Oof, um really hard to say that I wonder whether whether them being sort of remorseful it's more of a question of he knows he's going at the end of the season I, I think that's a fair assumption I don't think I'm rumor mongering by saying that I wonder whether that focuses him in quite a unique way. I mean, he's a Villa fan. He grew up a Villa fan. Like, you know, watching him play at Villa Parks, like seeing the Queen ride through Windsor, I guess, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and it's great. I, if, if anyone gets a chance to do that before, um, you know, before the... Um, actually, they won't get the chance to do that, will they, unfortunately? Um, <laughs> but it's one of the, I, it's a fond memory of mine, seeing him play there. So I wonder whether that will energise him. I think it needs to. I mean, when we when we talk about... You talked about that West Ham game. A, talked about the talent in that side. For me, Grealish is better than any player at West Ham. He is more talented. So I wonder whether in these games, which, you know, do become stodgy, players do become fearful, whether a player like that, who's naturally expressive, is the route out of relegation. I know he is in a literal way because he's their best player, but a sort of a a free-spirited type that kind of plays like he's got nothing to lose because, you know, he's probably leaving anyway. I think he'll be a, a major, major character in the next couple of weeks. I really do. Yeah,
0: I love watching him play. Yeah. He's, he's he's a really, really fluid talent, isn't he? Second only, by the way, to Kevin De Bruyne this season in terms of creating chances in open play, and to do that for a relegation-threatened side, a side that's second bottom at the moment, is remarkable, really. And it shows how how reliant they are on him. I mean, I wouldn't describe any team as a one-man team, but they're they're probably as close to it. As you get, although McGinn coming back will be will be big for them. Yeah, look, I, I think if they beat Sheffield United in that opening game, then that will be great for the league. It will be fantastic for the whole relegation battle because the rest of them will panic and maybe the team not panic, but they'll certainly certainly start to think, ah, right, this is getting a bit lively. So, so yeah, it's it's a huge game. If oh, they'll Sheffield...
2: they'll panic, all right, don't worry. Yeah.
0: Eh. <laughs> if Sheffield United, yeah, if Sheffield United win, <laughs> then you just think. Ugh, Villa, Villa yeah. might then start to think, oh, this is, yeah, maybe it's not, it's not going to be our time. In in this circumstances, you know, we all know football's a
2: hard, pretty cynical world. But sometimes, can naivety be an asset? And I'm thinking in terms of Norwich here and seeing if they've got any hope. You know, they've been criticised for their, their naivety and their, their refusal to, you know, shut up shop to to use the, the tired old cliche. What strikes me about them that they've got no phobias about the drop, you know. It's in a, in a strategic sense with the club, it's been assessed and rationalised in in the business plan. You've got Stu Weber as a, a you know I think a hugely impressive sporting director looking at the big picture on a constant basis. And what struck me also when we spoke to Grant Hanley a couple of weeks ago, was the idea that look this isn't a relegation
0: dressing room. How important is all that? I think it's very important. I think Norwich's biggest asset in this run-in is the fact that they can accept relegation. They're not panicking about it, to use the phrase we just used. They, they, they accept it because they they have a way of playing and they are sticking to it no matter what. They will be they will play with freedom. They will be attack-minded and it will get them where they get them. That's That seems to be the attitude from Daniel Farker. They don't want to go down. Of course they don't. The players don't have a relegation dressing room. I get that. They're, they're enjoying it. And I think that that when you get to the final 10 games or nine games as we are now, t- some clubs tighten up and some begin to get really nervous and worried and tread carefully. Norwich won't do that. And and I think that could that can help them win more games than some of their rivals. Whether, whether it will be enough for them to, to stay up Seems it seems a big ask, but but I would not write Norwich City off on the basis actually of of this this liberated style and the and the freedom they 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 will have during the run in and look Pookie loves the sunshine, yeah. doesn't he? He loves it, loves it with the sun <laughs> on his back. That was when he was good at the start of the season. And, and as a team, I do, I do feel that 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 they might they might work really well, you know, in in this sort of unusual behind closed doors atmosphere. They're poor at the back, we know that. They will concede goals, but I think they're going to score a few too. Do you think that the model sends out a message to the rest of the game,
2: Seb, in terms of, as I said, it does seem to be an extremely well-run football club
1: from the top downwards? I think it sends out a message, Mike. Whether that message is heard is an entirely different question because I like, do is football, I mean, let, let's see what emerges after, you know, after the restart and then the years to follow, but... Football doesn't seem to have the, the the appetite for a slowly, slowly, careful approach, you know, with lots of sort of, you know, lots of responsibility and, and, you know, not throwing the kitchen sink at sort of pipe dreams, that kind of stuff. I think they are the model for a certain type of club who are in, you know, League One or the Championship who, it's almost like, it, it almost seems as if like promotion was a happy accident. You know, I'm not saying that it wasn't deserved or that it wasn't, you know, there weren't really impressive dynamics behind it, but it was a kind of, we are not pushing all of our chips into the table for the sake of getting promotion and then collecting Premier League broadcasting payments. And I think that's the model to follow, is the kind of, promotion should always be a little bit like a, a happy accident. It is the sustainability of the club has always got to be the, the, the primary concern. Ditto when you, when you arrive here. I suppose for me, Norwich are kind of the, the sort of the anti-QPR the Tony Fernandez year, when you just thought, I mean, as things were developing through that last season, you just thought, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? Because it's a, it's a kind of you know throwing good money after bad type situation. And so Norwich very admirable. I, I hope, I hope it's an example that's heeded. Whether that is the case, I, I don't have as much confidence in that.
2: There's a sort of I don't know fifties innocence about it. You know yeah. the the you know the the on the ball City chance and 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 I think it is also if you look at football, you know, we we associate football with tribalism, but that in usually in the bad sense, but actually when you think about it, Norwich city is a, is the club of one city. And it is a club which will have 25,000 season ticket holders come rain or shine or hurricane. They will be there. And I think, again, that gives the stability and, you know, we all go through phases of, of hashtags, stronger together, and I, I get the sense that the community and the football club are as one.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, they're a shining light in in that sense. It, geographically, uh, I, I think that they are they're isolated, aren't all they're isolated, aren't they? They're on their Don't own. Don't you just and... love the A11? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and but so many. I was I was speaking to Dean Ashton. When when we were allowed to to be together, you know, in in, in a broadcasting environment, uh, not that long ago, and he still lives in Norwich, and says so many former Canaries players still still live there. They just they just fell in love with the, the place, and they are all Norwich fans. And yeah, it's, it's a shame. It's actually a real shame for them that for their supporters that they're denied a portion of the season, you know, in the top flight to 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 enjoy together at Carra Road because yeah it's it's definitely a special club and I'd personally love to see them survive they're not as cut adrift as as they might have been given how bad they've been defensively and 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 how the goals dried up for their their main man so yeah Norwich Norwich have a chance even though they're long shots let's look at Brighton if we could
2: chaps that's a club again looking at a bigger picture Dan Ashworth coming in uh, does signal some form of, of longer-term thinking. But the reality is no league win in this calendar year. Two clean sheets in 18. There's a real downward slide going on here. They've got decent fixtures against Newcastle, Southampton and Burnley. But they look bang in trouble to me.
1: Yeah, to me too, actually, Mike, because it, it, Brighton have been a little bit of a mind trick this season, haven't they? Because they've they've been much better to watch. They've been more expressive. There's a couple of players that are really, you know, really good fun. I, I I really like watching Troussard, the Belgian player. But at the same time, it's like all the problems that went away have been replaced by new ones. So you talk about that kind of, you know, with that sort of more expressive, expansive style. Defensively, they've been worse. They look more vulnerable. So it's kind of it's been an aesthetic success, but I re- I really want I really want them to succeed because I I want to see what happens next, Mike. I want to see sort of what Graham Potter can do over not just nine months but over three or five years, and the same with Ashworth as well because I I. I with him will come a focus on a younger type of player with a joined up academy system all the things that he left as his legacy at the fa whatever you may think of him as a person in you know individually as a person that's an undoubted success and so you kind of want to see how that model translates into the club game and inevitably relegation would would disrupt that so i kind of uh, i'm rooting for them but i I feel like I need a little bit more substance to their football, a little bit more resilience and a bit more toughness. It's like they they abandon a few too
0: many of the qualities that work for them under Chris Hutton. Yeah, I know. Well summed up, Seb, To be fair, I mean you you, you covered it. The only thing you, you you didn't mention there is the firepower. And yeah. the, the bottom yeah. line is you need you need people who can score goals to to get you out of trouble. And unfortunately. The only one that's really delivered consistently is Neil mope with eight. he's the top scorer the next highest has only got three. I think Trossard is one of those and the other's a defender. so so yeah, the firepower has been lacking, so I think they missed a trick with their recruitment. they didn't quite buy in buy enough quality in forward areas. and I also think that Potter hasn't played with two strikers often enough. he uh, when they have played with with two up top, they've looked a different proposition. And that and that sort of you know, paucity and attack is, has been strengthened. So so yeah, I, I hope that they go for it a little bit more on the resumption and, and and play play with more more ambition. Not that they don't; they're not defensive, but but I think they sometimes do pass the ball for passing sake, and and, and I think they need to be a little bit more direct. And 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 as you rightly point out. Bring in some of the you know bring back some of those defensive qualities they had under Houghton when where they were really tough to to break down I like Potter and I, I completely agree with you I think that, that that he can be a big success over a period of time so yeah i I, I think they might scrape scrape through and, and survive but it's going to be close
2: yeah well and i suppose you know they are as i said earlier planning for the long term you know uh, Graham potter's got a longer term
0: contract as well uh, and, and and by the way mate it was almost as if <laughs> it was the perfect time out for them because they they were spiraling towards relegation in, in in a sort of last dance basketball sense they would have called a timeout when when, <laughs> when it happened wouldn't they um, so so that might that might work for them, i don't know yeah can i just nick nick back to 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 southampton for a second you yeah, know because you know, this
2: week they've given Ralph Hassenhuttle a new four-year contract. Now, is that, do you think, Seb, a sign of a club looking beyond temporary problems? You know, we've already said they're going to survive. That will then give him a really firm base on which to build.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a few other things which have to happen at Southampton as well. Hassenhuttle getting the extension is a really good moment for them actually it's worth saying just um you know how well he's done to survive that 9-0 against Leicester that's a that's a that's a huge trauma to get through to get over during the season Southampton's recruitment is still really poor in a lot of places I feel like a couple of years ago pretty much anybody that spent any time around the game had a really clear idea of their of their structures and their departments and who was in charge of what at the club and now I don't have that you know Les reed has gone Paul Mitchell went a long time ago you know so I, I I they lost a head of recruitment, I think, in October or November. Went to, I forget his name, but he went, he took a job at Rangers. Uh,
2: Ross, was it Ross Wilson?
1: That's it. So, yeah, thanks, Mike. And and poor recruitment and big wage bills have been a, a real weight on their shoulders for the last few years. I mean, they've had some terrible signings for a lot of money. I think of someone like Creo. I mean, what, he's, he's still at the club, you know, and that was, I think that was about 15 million pounds. You know, it, it just it hasn't been as successful as it it needs to it needs to be. And so with Hassan Hitler at the center, yes, love the philosophy, love the ideas. I think he's a great presence. If you spend time with him in press conferences, he's real authority, which is nice. But you need to have the cohesion. At their best, Southampton were a very joined up football club that allowed them to succeed beyond their means and beyond their, their you know, their transfer spend, their wage bill. And now the opposite's true. So there is still a very inefficient side. And I also I have some questions over what the ambition and what the objectives of the owners are. I mean, this club was reportedly for sale about a year ago. So, you know, so what? So, so we need to, some of these issues need clarity is what I'm saying. And they're still quite a long way from that.
2: Yeah, let, let's nick down the Coast Aid, if we could, Bournemouth. Now, they don't play anyone around them. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? <laughs>
0: ask me ask me the end of end of june or sometime in july i do who knows who knows personally I, I think it could be an advantage in the sense that those six pointers can weigh heavy can't they obviously they're fantastic when you win them but then if you lose them the the, the feeling of despair and believe Believe you? I've been in there. I've been in dressing rooms. You know, when you've lost those big games towards the bottom end of the table, you just feel like, oh no, this. You know, the world's crashing down around you. So they're they're spared that, aren't they? In a sense, I think they need about nine points at least. And I do think they've got some winnable games. I do some of the matches that they've got on home turf, especially. They're not as hard as they could be, and I don't even go as far as to saying, like a Leicester at home, Leicester probably going to make the top four anyway. If Bournemouth had that bit of extra motivation, I think I think they could beat Leicester or certainly get points. Same for Spurs, Palace at home, Newcastle at home, Southampton at home. I think Bournemouth might again be okay here, but but yeah, personally, I I think it might be an advantage that they don't have those huge ultra pressure games against those around them.
1: Yeah, just about. I mean, the only thing I'd add is that they've got David Brooks back. I mean, I know he's been out for a long time, but he is fit again. Brooks changes everything for that side. Like he's he's a fabulous player. Whether he can step back in immediately and reproduce the form of 2018-19, I don't know. In terms of the pacing, their ability to score goals in different ways rather than just through counterattacks um, and set pieces, Brooks is invaluable. And if uh, the thing is, one, one thing I, I never really appreciated about Bournemouth is If they were to go down, that's a very difficult situation because if you look at all their spending since they arrived back in this division, it's all on the squad. There's no... I don't see any sort of infrastructural improvements. You know, it's all been, you know, pumped into, you know, sort of transfer spending and the first team, there's a lot of very good players there, but you just worry a little bit about what happens there, about their ability to absorb relegation and rebound from it. Um, (laughs) Because if you uh, you
2: think... If you're thinking about recruitment, there, Seb, it has been very poor, isn't it? You know, oh, um, very much so. And I, so. I, I noted you know, during the during the lockdown, very quietly, Jordan Ibe has been let go. Now he was a huge talent as a kid, didn't flourish at Liverpool, and Liverpool do did what Liverpool do, which is basically get rid of their unwanted
0: goods for incredible sums of money. <laughs> Yeah. it's amazing yeah I mean he was so good wasn't he he was such a such a, an exciting player when he first emerged but yeah Liverpool obviously saw something in him or or saw something he didn't have and you know I can only presume that, that a lot of that might have been to, towards it, it, the, the mental side of the game his character his attitude etc mental toughness because they make up you know the ingredients of a player that, that, that they're all talented. They're all talented players, but you've got to have the full package to to survive in the top flight and and thrive. And and yeah, maybe maybe Jordan just just hasn't got that. So yeah, no Liverpool. Full credit for for the business they've done with offloading some of their their their, their gifted young players down the years. On Bournemouth, by the way, just one other thing: in the Bundesliga, we've seen a lot of set piece goals, haven't we? And there's a theory that that with teams having not a lot of time to prepare. Being undercooked in a sense, with fitness being the primary focus. The focus of training right now is around around fitness. Understandably, one thing that might be neglected is defending set pieces in terms of of, of teams being ready for that. Bournemouth are amazing at their their ingenious set plays. Eddie Howe is, is is very very clever at coming up with new things, and and I can see them scoring multiple times from corners and wide free kicks on the resumption.
1: Guys, have, you, have, you, have, you, have either of you seen Verder Bremen defend set pieces? Honestly. Well, they don't, do they? They don't. Well, it's, it's like, Mike, honestly, it's like every time they face a corner, it's like they're facing like a, you know, a <laughs> law change that someone's just brought in that they, they have an, absolutely no idea what to do. Like I, I, was watching, I was watching last night and you just thought, yeah, okay, well, we'll leave that towering centre half in the six-yard box by himself. And what's the worst that could happen? It was honestly, it's extraordinary because, you know, if there's one, like I I, I accept that it's difficult to repair at the moment, but theoretically in terms of sort of, you know, a practical approach to how to defend things that you've had all the time in the world to think. Yeah, well, yeah. maybe maybe rethink some of the things yeah. we've been doing. <laughs> I feel like I've seen them concede like a thousand goals from from set pieces already. It's been three weeks. It's just yeah. You know. But
0: Bournemouth, Bournemouth, uh, a lot of teams. Let's let's face it, a lot of teams in the Premier League I think neglect set plays. They, they don't work on them as much as as, as the EFL clubs. Uh, they put a lower lower importance on them, and and they often they just swing the ball in. I mean, sometimes there's a plan. But not always. With Bournemouth, there always seems to be a plan. And when, after such a long break, I think it'd be very hard for opposition managers preparing teams for Bournemouth to second guess what kind of wide free kicks and corners they're going to face. So, so I, I do feel there's, there's an advantage there that they have to capitalise on. If they don't, Bournemouth, then, 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 then they might be in trouble because scoring goals in open play is a problem. Last year did a piece in this recently. Last year, I think they were 7th or 8th for chances created, shots on target, I think, and goals scored. They were a really good attacking team. This year, 19th. It, it, it's just dried up badly for them. Mm. I've got an image in my mind of Nigel
2: Pearson's face when Watford conceded a late goal to an avoidable late goal. I, I think it was to a free kick from memory. And it was one of those ones where you just thought to yourself, I'm glad I'm not going to be in that dressing room in about five minutes' time because it would have been Armageddon, I would have thought. I have to say, I've loved the way that Nigel Pearson has attacked, and that's probably the act- operative word, the job of trying to keep Watford in the in the Premier League. They've got, I think, some winnable games. Norwich, West Ham, again. Do you think, you know, given the sort of... There's been a confused element to some of the, the build-up. You know, Troy Dean is not really training... And he is such an emblematic figure at the club. Does that have any impact?
1: Where do you think Watford are, Seb? I'm not sure. I I don't quite trust them, Mike. I mean, the memory of that Liverpool win is still pretty vivid. But then not so long before that, I covered their game against Everton at Vicarage Road when they let slip a two-goal lead in about 90 seconds at the end of a half and then conceded that ridiculous breakaway. For from which Theo Walcott scored, I um I think they're a lot better. I think there's a lot more buying in from some of those players. That was one of the issues at the beginning of the season. Clearly, there were players that didn't want to be there, and that was you know you can't can't cope with that. But whilst they have improved, there's still an element of them which makes them vulnerable, and I, I can't quantify that. It's like kind of the wounds of earlier in the season. They are still quite vulnerable from set pieces, seemingly. They still, there are still moments in games which don't quite make sense. So I'll go back to the Everton situation. 2-2, they're playing against 10 men. Fabian Delph had been sent off. And you get caught with, it was a late set piece, I think, and you get caught with one player or two players at the back trying to deal with Richarlison and Walcott. And you think, if there's one way in which you can be hurt in this situation, it's by the pace on the break. That's the only thing you have to guard against because Everton are not even trying to win this game anymore. And when you see things like that, you think, okay, it's an improvement, but I'm not ready to sign off on everything being well yet because clearly not, clearly not. So let's, I, I, I think they'll be fine because I think they've got the talent. They need Sar on the pitch, yeah. But, uh, yeah, a few, a few question marks still, Mike.
0: Uh, yeah, my question marks are, are around the availability of Saar and Deeni. If if they are fit and they are playing well, then Watford should be fine. But but with no Delaferio, which is I think is a big blow because Delaferio is is a He's a match winner. He's the he's, he's capable of the unpredictable and and moments of magic. Without him, they need they need the the, the leadership of Deeney. Will he stay fit? You know when, when he hasn't been fit, Watford have struggled. We know that he's light on training anyway. So if he tries too hard to catch up, I could see potentially you know I don't know, attempt fate and I don't want to say he's going to get injured, but but it wouldn't surprise me. That would be a blow and 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 that puts a lot of pressure on Sar. Who, let's face it, wasn't great at the start of this season, but had found his feet. It puts a lot of onus on a guy that's that's still learning about the Premier League. So yeah, they're not out of the woods, Watford, but but yeah, Pearson. Pearson's a terrific, well, it's a terrific comeback from him. Mm, certainly. You mentioned briefly the Bundesliga, Seb. You know, it's
2: obviously because of the focus, you know, on the on the, the, the coverage that we've had on BT Sport, but also. You know, it's the only show in town at the moment, isn't it? So people are looking at it hard. I just want to briefly look at the transfer speculation and whether it actually reflects reality. You know, basically what we're hearing at the moment, that anyone who is impressed in the, in the Bundesliga is on the way to the Premier League. You know, it's, it's four orderly queue chaps. What is the reality, do you think?
1: I think the very best players in the game. So, I mean, when we're talking about Bundesliga, I think we mean Jaden Sancho. I think that kind of player will retain their value. And there will still be a market, and there'll still be a market as there was before for him, because he's not just a footballer, is he? In a way, he's someone that you can build all sorts of other imperatives around, and that will remain the same. I just wonder whether I heard a story about someone wanting to pay sixty million pounds for Marcus Taram the other day, and and I think Marcus Taram is a super player and a you know really interesting you know delightful human being. His father was great to listen to as well, obviously, and as well as being obviously a superb player. But I think the idea that you know we're going to get a lot of clubs willing to take a gamble on that kind of player, who is probably not not necessarily level below Jaden Sancho, but not quite as clear cut. You think you could be a very very good player in the right hands. You know, if you if he was sort of going to today's equivalent of Arsene Wenger, for instance, then you could see him becoming a, almost like a Thierry Henry type figure. The idea that the clubs are going to uh, throw sixty million pounds here, fifty million pounds there, I think the kind of the middle class of the transfer market. That's really going to disappear or or be squeezed at least. So I, I mean, you know, Harvard's yes, I, I can understand that too. But I I think it's almost like it's just an indication of media necessity rather than actual reality. It's kind of you you can't survive seemingly without a uh, you know a rumor market. So there has to be one.
0: I think the German market is going to be a bit bit inflated, obviously, because we all see we're seeing who the best players are and their values are soaring. The opposite could work in France, you know. And I think if clubs, I'm sure clubs have have got their scouting networks over there and they've done their due diligence. But those that have really kept a close eye on French football now might be the time to strike. Obviously, with the season over, we don't think it's it's going to come back there. And no opportunities for these guys to be in a shot window to catch the eye might be the time to, to, to pick out one or two gems from French football this summer. We'll have to wait and see. I that you know, it depends. I guess yeah, on the, on I'm, the I'm not so sure state. about
2: that. It's simply because I was speaking to someone in the championship the other mm. day, where the, the perception is mm. that the, the the top French players mm. are are Already. wildly overpriced. Okay, and, and they're and they're obviously looked at by the Premier League. Mm. You know, the the time when you can go and pick up, you know, a two million quid from a, a sort of a jobbing league uh, side, have gone. And there would have to be, I I, I don't think there'll be an immediate recalibration of those fees simply because, you know, they've got no money coming either. So they will see transfer fees as, you know, their lifeblood and they will want to get top dollar. And I'm not sure in the short term, you know, I think maybe long term, you've got a point because the one thing about the French clubs and, you know, a lot of scouts that I know, you know, are looking lower down the French structure the youth the youth development work that's done there you know and and also you know in in you know disadvantaged urban areas places like marseille or in in certain suburbs in paris there is a real there's a real wellspring of talent there and the trick is like anything in football anything in
1: recruitment is getting in there early isn't yeah, it yeah. yeah i wonder absolutely. whether guy. i I have a little bit of a theory on this i think that in terms of what we're going to see i think it's going to become really theoretical so I think we're going to see quite a few. I mean, we we, we think of League One as being a kind of a ripe shopping ground. I think clubs are going to become more creative. Maybe not Man United, Man City, that kind of club. I think you're going to look at people. You remember that '90s trend for Scandinavian players, that <laughs> kind of thing. I think that kind of thing is going to come back. Also, mm. I think we're going to see a real prevalence of data signings. Ordinarily, a, a club, most clubs would, you know, use data analytics to create a shortlist and then use scouts to check it in the in the sort of the, the more traditional way. I think what we'll have because that opportunity hasn't existed. Going to the summer, there hasn't been two or three months for for regular checks to take place. I think we're going to see a few lower price lunges and a few, well, you know, we, we're going to look at sort of a, a kind of a more, more binary type of signing. And that could be really interesting. It could go either way. But I, I think that's kind of, we're going to encourage coaches not just to try and buy off the peg, but try and buy raw materials and say, right, here's here's this 21-year-old guy from Norway or wherever make something from him because it's going to be a necessity. If you need bodies, and there are clubs that don't have a choice of whether or not they are in their squad. They need to, because they have shortages. And so that's going to be the way that they plug them, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I just want to get you know we talked about the the fantasy of transfer speculation. What about the reality of football? In the sense that we've had Lyle Taylor unapologetically refusing to play for Charlton in the championship. Uh, because, frankly, he just doesn't want to get injured. And I understand his desire to protect a life-changing move. What do you think of that? And, you know, as a player yourself or a recent player yourself...
0: Not that recent. Not that recent, okay. <laughs> um, uh, as, a, as a
2: veteran, a fast-fading veteran, yeah, um, yeah. you know, what, what about um, that attitude? One... I'm I'm guessing you understand it. But secondly, how will that go down with his mates in the dressing room? No, I,
0: th- I, think, I think it's outrageous. I'm glad you asked about it. It needs context, this particular story, because my understanding is that he was promised to move last summer and that it was pulled at the last minute. And Charlton kind of owe him. They owe him a, this chance to, to leave. So I don't think his head has been right ever since then. So there's there's an issue there with with Lyle and the club, and we all know what's going on with the ownership of that club. It's been a been a mess, hasn't it? But in terms of his stance, I can't agree with it. I think it's it's really out of order. You know, every player has a contract. Every player out of contract, rather, always has that feeling. In April, in May, March, April, May. Oh, hope I don't get injured here. I hope I don't get injured here because you know one wants to be you know, out of contract and and crocked without a club, do they? It's it it is it is problematic. And then if you know that someone wants you as well, in in the case of Lyle, then then you don't want to scupper that. But you have to get on with it. Part of being a footballer is every time you take to the pitch, you're risking it. You're you're risk getting injured, and you have to you have to get on with that. I think that it's self it's, it's clearly very selfish of Lyle, and I. Yeah, I, I hope that Charlton, you know, find him every penny that he's supposed to earn between now and the end of his contract because you can't opt out. If you're under contract and you're fit to play, you have to play and you have to give your best and hope for the best. No, I don't. Yeah. It, it, yeah, I don't agree with it at all. Do you think, Seb, is there a chance that
2: something like this could become contagious? But again, you can you please correct me if I'm wrong here but there seems to be a similar situation developing at Spurs with Jan Vertonghen, doesn't there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say Jan Vertonghen's situation is slightly different because his, he is not entering his prime. He is coming out of it and he is very clearly, I'm not going to say his legs have gone, but his legs have seen better days. Yes, um, <laughs> uh, you are.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think his head's gone. I mean, I mean his, his, well, head I, isn't in, his head hasn't been in Spurs for a while though, Seb, and, and I yeah. think that has impacted on his performances.
1: Well, I, I think also like I mean to be honest, the, the entire defence needs rebuilding. You might even include the goalkeeper in that. So I mean, it's kind of within that context. You know, he's allowed to chase his own ambitions because Tottenham aren't going to stand in their way in, in his way. So I, I don't see that as any kind of betrayal. But I certainly might. You know, with, with this with this situation specifically, again, it's creating a precedent. Aid said I I hadn't even considered this actually, but it makes perfect sense. What Aid said. You know, if you were out of contract, you would be a little bit reticent you would be worried about getting injured. Now, what's happened here is kind of a verbalization of all these thoughts that a player has had. And then in the future, I think it's perfectly rational to expect it to happen again because people can point to him and say, well, he did it, you know? And, and so I wonder, I'm really conflicted on it. I I, I can understand that he, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, he had a, a semi-serious injury earlier in the season, didn't he? If I was his teammate, I'd hate it. No doubt about that, because, you know... It's well, just... it's not like they're safe. I, I think if, exactly, they're, mid-table, if exactly. they're mid-table
0: and going go nowhere, I think I think you maybe come up with a hush-hush deal with the manager to just say, look, we're not going to make a fuss about it, but yeah, all right, I'll, I'll leave you out the last couple of games. You've got to yeah. keep, you give me something. But they are they are in the middle of a relegation scrap and they need their their best forward. He is their best forward. He, he, he no doubt is one of the top earners of the club. Strikers normally are. I think he has a responsibility to play and to do his best for the for the club. And no matter what has happened in the past, he's effectively going on strike, and it is a really dangerous precedent. And you're yeah. right. Come next February, come next March, can could be a stack of footballers suddenly say, "Well, look, you know, I don't want to get injured. You know, I've got a move lined up." Um, hey, well, especially the, the so if, if if clubs
1: are, you know, if if the wages on offer and the contracts on offer are retracted which then most likely will be at that level of the game because you know you're just not going to have the security to, to offer players three four-year deals like if a player is you know you're going to see people on one two years 18 months you know and, and they're going to think about their long term it's not it's human nature for them to do that they've got families and kids and you know the rest of us
0: of course but you you have to you have to carry on and and yeah. And hope for the best. You can't wrap yourself up in cotton wool no. for, for too long, you know, to, to, to get what you want. I, I just think morally it's, it, it's a really dangerous ground to be treading.
2: Yeah. You know, I suppose it's every, every man for himself, isn't it? And using that phrase in a completely different context, I just want to end by us talking about the way the game has responded to outside events this week. I'm looking at it and wondering whether this is the the week that football almost rediscovered its social conscience and certainly rediscovered uh, its its voice. If you think about it, you've got players like Marcus Rashford, Paul Pogba, Rian Brewster, you know, following someone like Raheem Sterling and becoming voices of a new generation in in their fight against racism. Where do you think the game? can actually be a positive force for good here let's let's talk about okay there's been some very strong words this week and some really powerful images i'm thinking of the liverpool images the chelsea image with the h for you know the human race is this a tipping point for football and is this the time you think that we need to look to football to help set an example or certainly to provide some form of rallying point
1: let me let me insert a little bit of an asterisk here Mike I would draw a line of separation between the clubs and the players I've been really impressed by some of the players I, I think you mentioned Rian Brewster there I don't think I've ever heard such a young player talk as eloquently as, as he did about racism he's a hugely admirable human being and I think he's still Jurgen
2: Klopp Jurgen Klopp spoke brilliantly about that message didn't he
1: yeah I, I, and Klopp's another one Klopp is a, a very socially aware head coach sometimes with the with the clubs i feel like i feel like they make gestures like I, I feel like and i'm not criticizing anyone individually but i feel like you know doing the doing things for a pr benefit is quite easy what i want to see is you know where it's difficult for a player is when they put themselves out in front of a cause when they could be attacked for it it's not hard for a a, a premier league football club to to take an image which presents a, the solidarity as a as a concept and as laudable as it is you wonder right well when this affects you when there is an incident within your club are you going to behave in the same way when a player is found guilty of racially abusing someone are you going to release that player as a gesture are you going to are you and this this doesn't just include racism it's okay so domestic violence when that when a player is found to have attacked his wife or his girlfriend do you no questions are, are asked irrespective of how valuable that player is do you just cancel his contract because that's what you should do that's what you should do so in terms of, play, uh, of football's ability to lead when those kind of things start happening regularly and they're not led just by individual players who let's be honest they're young men they shouldn't have that responsibility that they that they do is is wonderful they're, and you know all power to them for that but football's got a long way to go in terms of the example that it sets in my opinion
0: yeah here here I completely agree I was going to go down the same route in terms of yeah, actions uh, speak, uh, you know, speak the most powerfully, don't they? And and from a club end, they have to make sacrifices. And if yeah, if one of their own is guilty of racism or sexism or homophobia or any of these things, sack them and take the hit because that 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 you can't send out a stronger message than that. Walk off the pitch if there if there's racism that's occurring. Be brave. Be willing to take the consequences if indeed there are. Any consequences? It's good to see a change in heart, really, from from FIFA and UEFA and, and the Bundesliga. There will be no punishment for the players, you know, with the, with the with the with the you know the messages on the shirts. They're to be applauded. That that's welcome. Refuse to play in countries where where there are issues, where there have been problems, even if that means you you lose you lose points. Make the authorities make a decision about that. Make them act. Properly on it, and and don't go on these money money spinning trips to certain countries that have terrible human yeah, rights records. Absolutely. Walk away, walk away from it. Th- those those are the things that clubs can do. The players, long may they have a voice. And 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 I think it is really good and refreshing that agents and clubs are now allowing players to to to, to speak out and for you know and to say what they feel. Even though they know that some people will attack them for it, I think I think that bravery is to be commended. And and yeah, I agree. I think I think clubs need to be brave too. Do you think you know, we're we're at a stage, said, where
2: there can be progress made in in practical terms? You know, if you think about it, football has pretty much blithely ignored a version of the Rooney Rule to increase black and ethnic minority representation. When you've got that sort of reticence, and I think we'd need to call it out as such, where is someone going to, to summon the spirit and the backbone to actually do something rather than just talk about it?
1: That point occurs when the right people are in positions of authority. And that's a, you know, that's an entirely different question, Mike. Matter to which there's all kinds of very strange anomalies in English football. Uh, we haven't had a black referee in this country since you are a Rennie. I mean, in the Premier League, sorry. That is ridiculous. And how can that be? How can that be? That's the kind of thing which needs a proper investigation. Is it because there's a fault at the foot of the game in terms of how how a, a black referee might be treated in, in non-league games or in amateur football? Is it because the opportunities don't exist? There, there isn't a proper answer for that. And it's it's quite staggering. So in answer to your question, like, you need to create the conditions whereby people can actually examine things like that. I'm not smart enough to diagnose the reasons behind it, and I'm not, you know, not smart enough to suggest a, you know, uh, an alternative, but you need, to, you need to, to, to listen to people. There's a lot of people in football that talk a lot, um, and we're on a podcast doing exactly that, so I'm aware of the <laughs> irony. But there are an awful lot of people that stand up and teach, and they, they stand up and, and you know, they're very prominent, and there are not enough people, perhaps, who sit down and listen. You know, and there are not enough people that, that sort of, uh, you know, someone that we all know, I'm, for instance, listen to, to Troy Townsend talk about some of these issues. He's, abs- he's very, very interesting and, and the work he does is very admirable. And so where w- are there enough people like that sort of illuminating some of these issues? Uh, are there enough people that kind of with a, you know, an appetite to actually reform football in meaningful ways? Or is it just to kind of go back to that sort of gesture culture where as long as we see the right photos at the right time and as long as you know during champions league games we see that kind of those uef adverts which you know we, we say no to racism well meaning as they are you know i mean it's a good thing i'm not sa- suggesting otherwise but as long as we see those things are we content to think right well this is okay then because uh, i don't really i don't really buy that i don't think that is sufficient i don't think that is a proportional response to the problem and to the lack of representation in football. So I think that has to be addressed. This is a a podcast of itself, isn't
2: it? Well, it certainly is, yeah, yeah. I suppose I'll I'll just try and tie it together, really, if I could. I think we're all aware that football is the global game. Now, I've been blessed that I've been able to watch it in, in more than 80 countries. And I've seen the joy that it provides amidst poverty and repression, and I've seen it unite educate and enthrall but I suppose what we're asking is what more can the game do now I think we'd all be interested in your views please get in touch and thanks to you for joining us here on the football writers podcast and please stay safe out there